This is the Researcher's Code podcast. My name is Victoria Carr and I interview pioneering women who are pushing the boundaries of technology and scientific research, from computational social science to robotics. I ask what their research is about, how they got into tech, and what their advice would be to women and minorities wanting to work in tech. I hope you enjoy listening. Today I am speaking to Professor Marika Taylor. Um, she's a Professor of Theoretical Physics and Head of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Southampton and also Fellow of the Turing Institute in London. Welcome Marika. So can you tell us a bit about you and your research? So I indeed work on theoretical physics. I'm particularly interested in the physics of the universe. The physics are very, very small, so what is inside um, the nucleus and the physics of the very large, physics of the beginning of the universe, how the universe evolves. Um, a lot of my work is quite abstract and, and theoretical. It's sort of pen and paper, sort of conceptual ideas. And then my students and I will sort of work together to turn that into mathematical models. There'll often be some kind of programming involved. And increasingly, we think about how these same kinds of mathematical models can be used for kind of real life problems that the world has. Wonderful. So you started your university life reading physics and theoretical physics at the University of Cambridge. Um, so tell me actually what inspired you to start doing physics at university? So I, I found it very difficult to decide what I was going to do um, in the last two years of school. Um, so I was somebody who very much liked sciences, but I also liked languages and, and humanities. I settled that actually by taking a spread of subjects. So I had them in maths and physics and chemistry, but I also had French and Latin and economics. So I had a, a very big mixture. Um, the thing I enjoyed the most was really quantitative mathematical modelling. I didn't go for mathematics um, because I like to see how things were applied. And also, I have to say, there was a, an element of um, my school dissuading me, sort of saying, well, you know, mathematics is very hard. Mathematics is something that girls don't do. Um, mathematics at Cambridge, in particular, would be too hard. And so they steered me towards the natural sciences at Cambridge, um, where you, for the first year of that, you actually you don't just take physics, you actually take a mixture of subjects. And so I had a mixture between math, physics, chemistry, um, material science type subject. And I specialised in the physics because that was what I enjoyed the most. And then increasingly, as I went through my degree, I actually moved more and more towards mathematics and realised that I was in the wrong department. I actually should be in what's the applied maths and theoretical, department, theoretical physics department in Cambridge, which is actually where you'd have gone if you'd studied maths. Um, and, and then I took some joy in going back to my school and saying, well, actually, you know, girls can do that um, and they can do it quite well. Yeah, and so were there any biases in your school that if perhaps they didn't say that, you know, that girls perhaps would find maths hard at Cambridge, you would have maybe done maths? So it was an all-girls school, and they were very ambitious for us. They just felt that, you know, maths at Cambridge was extremely hard. And actually, in retrospect, I don't think that was true. You know, of course, different people, depending on aptitudes, can find some things harder than others. But I don't think that maths was actually particularly harder than physics or chemistry. It was something, an intrinsic bias that they had. Yeah. And it perhaps reflected the fact that maybe they'd had a student rejected from that when they hadn't. It was, it, it was almost that. So whilst they were incredibly supportive of women doing science as a whole, and sent many of us off to do physics and engineering and computer science and maths at other universities, 
they had this sort of thing that that was particularly, you know, they had this idea that this was extremely hard. Yeah, and so I guess my yeah, my question would be like, where, how, where did they get that preconception from? Was it perhaps because a student went to Cambridge and? Yeah, my understanding is they hadn't had a student because it wasn't a very big school. Yeah. They hadn't had a, a student go and do maths at Cambridge. Yeah, ultimately I moved um, the fourth year I did as maths and I did quite well at it. I went back to the school and said, you know, if you have students, you shouldn't be afraid of trying to send them there. You know, if they're students who've got you know, very good kind of grades that you need for Oxford and Cambridge and top universities and they like the look of the course, then you know, send them there. And if they get in, they'll do fine, right? You know, the selection procedure means that you know people who actually get into this actually do well. And were there any teachers in your school that really inspired you or I guess you went to quite good school because the, they really encouraged the engineering and physics, as you said, but were the, yes. were the teachers very good there? So I was very lucky with teachers. Um, so I, as I said before, I had a very large range of interests. And even though I didn't ultimately carry on to study economics and, and languages, many of the teachers there actually went well beyond their duty in kind of giving me extra reading material. I was reading sort of um, quite a high level economics text when I was about 13 or 14. You know, they would kind of take my interests and they, they would actually push it further. And so, you know, that was that was sort of great that they actually really gave me special assignments and different things to do. And indeed, in, in, in the area of maths and physics and chemistry, um, I think all the teachers I had were inspiring one way or another. You know, some were male, some were female, but all of them were very committed to the students. They were very enthusiastic. Um, and I think they tried to get everyone to achieve their potential and to be the best they could. Yeah, and that's so yeah. important when you're deciding what you want to do at university Absolutely. afterwards, definitely. Yeah. Um, so when you went to, to Cambridge, you stayed there for a PhD and you specialised in cosmology and black holes. Um, in your undergrad degree near the end, I guess, because, you know, you specialise more and more at Cambridge in your natural sciences degree. And then you went on to do a PhD there under the supervision of the late Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. So what inspired you to study black holes in particular? And forgive me for asking, but what was it like being supervised by Stephen Hawking at that time? So, so during my undergraduate degree in physics, it became clear that I was most interested in theoretical physics. And then at that time, if you wanted to study theoretical physics, the best grounding was to do the fourth year within the maths tripos, the maths department. And there, indeed, I, I took courses in black holes, quantum fields, um, cosmology. And I realised that that was actually the area I wanted to study. That was the thing I found most interesting. Then there's a sort of a sense of which area, which part of it do you want to go into? So are you somebody who wants to work closely with the experiments? Are you somebody who wants to work on large-scale numerical simulations? Do you want to be sort of at the forefront of conceptual ideas? Um, and Stephen was very much at the forefront of the conceptual ideas. I mean, he was, he was in a sense, the natural person to, to work with for what I was interested in doing. Um, and so, okay, I went to talk to him, which is, of course, quite intimidating. Um, several years before that point, I'd had a brief history of time, the book, I think it came out, you know, when I was when I was at school, and it was, um, you know, of course, inspiring. It, it, you know, many much of it didn't make any sense at that time because it was quite advanced. And um, in my last year at Cambridge, I'd gone to lectures by him and Roger Penrose, which were extremely inspiring. And that was another reason for wanting to study black holes because they were debating various aspects of the quantum physics of black holes. 
And so even though it was intimidating to go and meet Stephen for the first time, actually the conversation rapidly moved into the physics that I was interested in, and then it wasn't intimidating at all. Then we're having a discussion, and it's, you know, it was fine. And I actually never found that part intimidating. I mean, in terms of doing a PhD with him, the real difference between working with Stephen and working with another theoretical physicist is that you know Stephen, of course, was limited. Um, he, he could speak very slowly through his speech synthesizer. He couldn't do pen and paper calculations. He obviously couldn't program code. And so what, what, the way you would work with him is you know, he'd have ideas about abstract concepts, and you have to go away and turn that into mathematical calculations, um, sometimes programming, mostly actually with work with Stephen, it was quite you know, calculations, pen and paper calculations. Whereas if you work with a theoretical physicist, usually the relationship between the student and, and the supervisor is that, you know, yes, you come up with the ideas, but you're also helping the student at every step of the way to actually do the calculation. So you don't expect the student to be so independent. You, you kind of guide them. So my students will be in and out of my office all day with, you know, we're stuck on this, can you help me? You know, which textbook do I need? How do I get through this? And with Stephen, you couldn't, you couldn't get that level of day-to-day -day help. So he really needed students who were kind of quite independent from the outset, able to go and get help from other sources if needed, quite you know, creative, quite good at problem solving. And in that sense, although it was very difficult working with him, it was also a very good preparation because you know, people often talk about becoming an independent researcher. You had to be an independent researcher right from the start with Stephen. So there was no kind of being spoon-fed at the beginning and gradually becoming more independent. You just had to go straight in the deep end. Yeah, so being an independent researcher straight into your PhD, that suited you very well, or was there a little bit of a learning curve as you Oh, there was, there, there was certainly a great deal of a learning curve in um, doing that kind of research, um, but ultimately I think it suited me quite well. And of course it, it was inspirational to have somebody sort of tossing out ideas in all kinds of directions. Um, they, they were often quite... Um, quite challenging ideas, quite... Um, the details weren't there, but sort of thinking about what he had in mind, um, that was something which was extremely stimulating. It was very exciting to actually sort of you know, flesh them out and see whether you could make it work. Fantastic. And I guess that really helped you go into a life as a researcher, having prepared so independently your thesis as well. So your research merges a lot of different concepts in physics. Um, so quantum field theory, string theory, gravitational theories. But reading your research more closely, you look into something called holographic principle to study black holes. Um, so in layman terms, could you just explain the, the existing theories about black holes and then what the holographic principle can um, do to aid our understanding of them? Yes, yeah, so one of the reasons why uh, Stephen Hawking spent almost 40 years of his life studying um, black holes is that we know that there are important quantum effects happening on the surface of black holes and understanding them is the, really the key to how you combine quantum physics with very strong gravity. So most of us know from watching science fiction movies that you know, black holes you know, they have very, very strong attraction. You know, we see in, in, in Doctor Who or whatever sci-fi program you want, you know, the TARDIS is kind of sucked towards the black hole. So we have this very strong sense of the, the, the gravitational, the extreme gravitational physics around black holes. But there are also, as Stephen discovered in, in 1974, very strong quantum effects around the surface of the black hole. 
And that's where the forefront of you know, fundamental theory of physics actually is, trying to reconcile those quantum effects with gravity. Now, holography, where that comes into play, is that it's really a huge paradigm shift for gravity itself. It says that gravity can be described entirely in terms of a language of a theory of one less dimension. So our three-dimensional world with gravity in it, you know, Newton's apple falling from a tree in three dimensions, we can describe in terms of something happening on a two-dimensional screen around our world. Um, this is clearly a kind of a radical paradigm shift, you know, that the three dimensions that we see around us are in some sense an illusion. They emerge from a world which is just in two dimensions. But it's something that we, you know, we believe that this is correct. Um, we have a lot of theoretical evidence, a lot of calculational evidence that this is correct. And this kind of, this huge paradigm shift, it gives us a key into, into what's going on in black holes because this, this, this picture allows us to describe not just classical gravity, but what happens when you have very strong quantum effects in gravity. So it can kind of tell us what's going on in black holes. But it's also far wider than that, because again, if our world is really described not in terms of three big dimensions, but two big dimensions, that means something for cosmology, for the evolution of the universe itself, and also the connection between gravity theories and quantum theories you can use in the other direction. You can say, well, actually studying the physics of black holes can tell you about, say, the physics of quantum systems like the hard disks that we use in our computers. So that you know, studying different systems that we thought were completely different in physics, they actually turn out to be related in a very exciting and interesting way. Yeah. So actually, I've interest like how long has the holographic principle been around for? Because it, again, it's a very conceptually challenging thing to discover um, because we're so used to our world being three dimensions so how long has it been going on for and again you've been you mentioned how, where these things could be applied are there any other applications where you could apply holographic principle so, so the holographic principle was was suggested by a number of physicists in, in the 1990s uh, partly to explain the physics of black holes. So they came up with this idea as, as something which could explain the quantum properties of black holes that Hawking and others had found. It was only really when it became a very concrete, it went away from an abstract idea to a concrete mathematical idea with equations in it in string theory about 20 years ago that people started to take this, this seriously. So this is really a precise holographic dictionary. I do a calculation in gravity what would be the equivalent calculation that I do in the quantum theory that doesn't have gravity in one less dimension. So that's around 20 years ago that we, we start to understand that. Now, this is not something that it's very easy to find experimental signatures, observational um, signatures for. Uh, the only signal that we would see that the universe is not really described in terms of three big dimensions is, in, is when the when universe is, is highly quantum. So it's at the surfaces of the black holes, it's at the very beginning of the universe itself. And currently, the experimental data that we have of either of those things is just not at the level that we can actually resolve what would be holographic effects. You know, in the coming decades, we will get better and better at imaging what's going on on the surface of the black hole and potentially see signals that, that you know, gravity is really holographic. We're starting to get more and more precise information about the very early universe from the cosmic microwave background. And again, as we start combining these data sources and we, you know, we, the precision of the data increases, 
we might see signals of, of the holographic universe, but it's not something yet we would see experimentally. However, the theoretical ideas have a very large number of applications. So one of, one of the interesting applications is trying to use a gravity system in three spatial dimensions to describe a quantum system with no gravity in two dimensions. And again, you, you could think about that in terms of a system which is just a flat quantum hard disk, the type of things that people study in the laboratories to be the next generations of computers, quantum computers. Um, you can get insights into these. There may be very strong interactions between the particles in this two-dimensional theory. And we don't have very good conventional ways of, of describing this. And it may be th the best way to describe it may actually be with gravity in three dimensions, gravity with black holes and so on in three dimensions. So that's, that's one of the big applications that mm. people explore. But actually it touches almost all areas of, of um, physics. And it also, of course, goes very deeply into mathematics because many of the concepts that we use in physics can be translated into mathematics language. And now if you say that these are related to each other, you've actually linked different branches of, of mathematics. So you've linked, say, geometry to number theory. You've got new links that people hadn't found before. Or in some cases, actually, people had conjectured them in mathematics, but this is a completely different way of seeing the same, the same links. So many people who work in, in string theory also have very deep connections with mathematics, sometimes work in mathematics departments for this kind of reason. Fantastic. And so you mentioned about gaining more experimental data, and now data is becoming more available mm -hmm. um, to perhaps prove closely mm -hmm. that theory of ho holographic theory. So is is this why perhaps you're at the Turing at the moment? Are you trying to gather all these data sources and use that to, as experimental evidence for some of the, the, the research you're doing? Or is, or is there another a reason why oh, so, you're, so. You're, you're using data science? So I have a fellowship at the Turing Institute, both for understanding sort of un theoretical concepts, underpinning theoretical concepts, and also indeed to probe um, the next generation of experiments. I think one has to be realistic that, you know, Einstein predicted gravitational waves soon, they, they were immediate consequence of his theory of gravity, and they were predicted 100 years ago. It took us 100 years to get the technology to actually detect them. So often theoretical physics is running ahead of what one can actually do in experiments. Having said that, um, there are opportunities coming up over the next 10 to 20 years where one could possibly see signals of quantum uh, effects in gravity, quantum effects in the early universe, for which um, sophisticated data science techniques will be crucial. So one example is if the, the very early universe contain signs that there was a holographic description, a description without gravity, we would actually have to fish this out from the data that's there. We have to you know, look at quite sophisticated uh, Bayesian methods to compare different possible models, you know, compare the evidence. Um, some of these, you know, the, data, the data science techniques you need are really at the forefront of, of um, data science study. Similarly, in, in ideas uh, relating to, to black holes, um, to gravitational waves coming out of black holes, again, the, the, the experiments which are based up in, in space, LISA, that, that should start in 15 to 20 years, it's at this stage that people are starting to develop um, the ways of analyzing the data coming from LISA to look for these very, very small effects. 
And so there's you know, quite sophisticated techniques of so-called topological data analysis would be relevant. And so indeed, that's, that's one part of being in the Turing Institute. The second part is actually this, 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 this um, statement that actually holography wants to relate areas of science which seem to be unrelated to each other. And so I mentioned before that it wants to relate geography, uh, geometry to number theory, but it also wants to relate uh, things like geometry to uh, machine learning processes. So machine learning is something that we put very, very squarely in the, in the data science category. And yet the process of falling into a black hole is something that we can describe geometrically. So Einstein told us we should describe this in terms of you know, curved geometry, falling on the shortest paths in a curved geometry. But actually using holography has an alternative description in terms of a machine learning process. Now that wouldn't be a much compensation to the poor astronaut who falls in, who wouldn't survive the process. But actually, as they fall in, there would be a, a machine learning type process. That's the actual process of falling step by step towards the black hole is a machine learning process. And so these very deep connections between geometry and machine learning are important in themselves because you know, that, can, that can tell us something about machine learning. Um, in holography, we see emergent geometries for machine learning, learning processes, which haven't been studied much in the computer science community. We have an understanding of what they mean um, in physics terms in our holographic models, but they almost certainly have an, you know, important understandings for computer science that we can kind of talk about and, 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 and discuss with them. Wow. So I guess a machine learning algorithm is a decision-making agent that falls into, I guess, a, a well of final decisions, that it follows a geometric path. If I could describe it in very basic term yes. would that be something <laughs> i think i think you could describe it in almost in even simpler terms of just um you know, starting from information and deducing the next step of information um, and this is not something when you think of something falling towards a black hole you don't think of this in terms of um, layers of information and, and decision-making at all. I mean, that your intuition doesn't want to, to, to say that. But actually the fact that using holography, we can rephrase it in, to, in terms of that language is already very interesting in itself. And you mentioned earlier about um, collecting data from LISA. So I, I assume that's radio radio data or? So LISA is, um, LISA is a gravitational wave detector, which would be based up in space. Uh, so the current generation of gravitational wave detectors, which are based on Earth, are based on um, laser arms. And so what, what happens is that they have um, different uh, long, long laser arms to the, the detectors. And as the gravitational wave comes through, it, di it disrupts the lasers and it changes the, the beam length of each, each side. And by comparing the beam lengths of, of different parts of the detector, you can see what's, you, you can um, deduce uh, the gravitational wave has passed through. And by having several detectors placed in different parts of the Earth, uh, which simultaneously or almost simultaneously see the same signal from space, you can then triangulate where it came from. And by looking at the detailed shape of the signal, you can work out when in the universe was it produced because the universe is expanding. And so by looking at the redshift of the signal, you can actually figure out it was produced a billion years ago. You get all this kind of information. But on Earth, the, the uh, gravitational waves that we see 
are in frequency bands which correspond to things like black holes of roughly the same mass as the sun colliding with each other. We can't see with Earth-based detectors um, the signals coming from very, very heavy black holes. So at the center of galaxies, we have black holes which are millions of times as heavy as our sun. Um, every black hole has one. They can have, sometimes have more than one. And there are very interesting processes that occur when things fall into those kinds of black holes. They produce gravitational waves. But to see those, the frequency bounds are such, you can't do it on Earth. And so people had the idea of basically sticking up in space a ginormous um, triangle of lasers. So several hundred thousand kilometers apart. So you've got three, three, three arms, it's like a triangle, and each arm is several hundred thousand kilometers. And then it kind of moves in, in, um, moves in orbit um, in synchrony with the Earth. And this would actually detect uh, gravitational waves. It would be able to detect gravitational waves both from, from things falling into super heavy black holes and also perhaps gravitational waves coming from processes in the very early universe. Uh, this sounds, again, crazy technology that we can actually do this, but uh, the European Space Agency has done various pathfinder um, uh, approaches to this. So they've actually sent up um, test technology into space to check that we can actually do this. It worked extremely well. In fact, I think it, believe it worked better than design specification, which is more than you can actually hope for. And so it's, people are confident that this would actually work and it's scheduled to be launched within 15 to 20 years. And this would be, uh, this detector, uh, it would be much more sensitive to the kind of quantum effects of black holes and also to the very early universe and possibly quantum signals in the very early universe than the gravitational wave detectors that we have based on Earth. So why are the why do the gravitational detectors work on Earth? Why do why are they not as sensitive? Is it because obviously the gravitational fields in, on Earth that's interfering, or is it the atmosphere? So, or so gravitational wave detection on Earth is, in fact, every anywhere you do it is extremely challenging because you're looking for very very tiny effects. You're almost looking for waves of an amplitude which is smaller than a proton. So you have to figure out a clever way to amplify this and, and, and make sure that you've got a reliable detection. The biggest limiting factor that you have on Earth is going to be just uh, seismic effects. The fact that your detector gets just you know, shaken by you know, the, the seismic activity which is around it. And so that's why we have more than one detector. So a key component of the discovery by the LIGO gravitational wave detectors of gravitational waves was that they saw the same thing in two separate detectors in different parts of the USA with a very slight time lag, which was caused by the fact that gravitational waves travel at the speed of light, and so it hit one detector before the other. So if one detector had seen something but the other had seen nothing, that would be a sign that it was just caused by local seismic activity. It's the correlation between the signals which is actually crucial in finding it. And now the problem for seeing gravitational waves in the frequency band associated with processes in the very early universe or very heavy black holes is that seismic activity on Earth just, just dominates it. So it's not so much the gravitational field on Earth that's the problem, it's really just the local seismic activity. So we, we need um, to, be, to have the sensitivity to see these. We need laser arms of several hundred thousand kilometers um, and being up on uh, up in space, obviously, then they're not subject to seismic activity. 
So your role as fellow of the Turin Institute, are you going to build um, a selection of researchers to help you on your um, on your uh, journey to find out a bit more about machine learning? Yeah, so I have already several, a number of PhD students and uh, people I work with in Southampton and elsewhere who come from my field and they work with me on holography and these ideas of you know, the reconstruction of geometry and how this could be related to machine learning. The idea in the Turing Institute is to interact with people who have the expertise in machine learning from the computer science community and discuss with them. You know, so when we see an emergent geometry associated with um, a machine learning process, you know, we have an interpretation in physics language in terms of whether it's um, things falling into black holes or something like that. But it would be to, to try and translate the interpretation into a language which is useful for computer scientists. So it's, I think it's really the collaboration with experts from other areas that, that I'm very interested in. You were listening to the Researchers Code podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you use.